Welcome to the future of coding. Good to be back. I've got a brand new thing that we're going to start doing on the podcast. And I say we because I am pleased to introduce you to a new co-host. Jimmy Miller is going to be joining me on a series of episodes of indefinite length. This might just be what the show is now, in addition to interviews when they come, where we're going to look at a bunch of classic papers in computer science and adjacent fields do a deep reading of them and then reflect on them here on the show and share how they relate to our visions for what the future of programming could look like. We're going to start the series by looking at a foundational paper by J.C.R. Licklider called Man-Computer Symbiosis. This episode has been sponsored by Replit, Glide, and a new one, Theater.js. But just before we get into the paper, I'm going to let Jimmy introduce himself. I've been a big fan of Future of Coding for quite a while. I reached out to Ivan to kind of do this little, you know, talk about some papers simply because I really like where Future of Coding is going. I like these uh, interviews that are kind of more speculative, more in-depth, and and less about exactly just showcasing work. And so I don't really have any work to showcase. I don't ever finish my projects. I just play with things. Never really have anything to show for it. So I think coming in and talking about it sounded a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that puts you in, uh, in in the same company as everybody else in the Slack, and that I don't I don't know that anybody in the Slack, other than Mariano, has actually finished a project and and put it out in the world. Wait, oh, that's unfair, but I mean that's definitely the the sort of the norm of our community is everybody's working on their far future ambitious goals, and uh, I think it makes for a nice change of pace from the regular working world where you have to, you know, grind out software that doesn't feel very meaningful or significant and, you know, it pays the bills and then we can all come here and talk about like, oh, let's radically transform the way we all live and work. And that's a kind of a utopian fantasy kind of thing that I am very much on board with. So I mean, exactly. Like finishing software is the the least fun part of software, right? Like yeah. at work having to do that, like, well, yeah, I guess I need to make this CSS all nice here, or I need to go add in metrics and ensure that if something... Like, those are just never the fun things, right? It's always the that initial discovery phase, that thinking through the problem. It's it's learning, right? Like, that that to me is the, the fun part of all of this. It's just learning new things and imagining some possible future rather than uh, necessarily realizing it. There's that saying, art is never finished, it's abandoned. <laughs> I can't remember who that quote belongs to, but that I think parallels very nicely the adage from engineering, the first 90% of the problem takes 90% of the time, and the second 90% of the problem takes 90% of the time, and yeah. Yeah, absolutely, right? I, I, and I think that this is, I, I think that we should, you know, foster this, right? Like, I don't think that this is, some people think, like, the fact that no future of coding project has like taken over and become mainstream is, you know, some indictment, but I, I don't really. I think the fact that we're all learning and discovering new ways and exploring things is really the end goal. I love that it 
has filtered into the way that I do my own work in my regular job. Like I'm now routinely looking at the kind of the ho-hum SaaS software that I play in with a different lens and thinking about it in a different way. And it's much more like there's all this talk about like user focused design and, and sort of obsessing about the experience for the end user as a, as a very important part of the concept of what software should be. And I, I like having this as a, a lens because it takes me, I feel even deeper into that realm where I'm thinking about things, not just in terms of like, how will somebody use the software I'm making to, to do their job at their, you know, at their business or whatever it is, or, or uh, in my case, like how will they use my software to learn about the things they need to learn about? Cause I do learning software. Um, I, I, it, it gives me this, this awareness that like the computer is supposed to be so much more of an empowering tool than what it currently is. Like what it is now is so much closer to a closed down, dumbed down appliance that is dynamic only in the most limited ways. And that there's this rich lineage of thinkers who said, you know, computers are supposed to be the bicycle for the mind. They're supposed to be, you know, this transformative tool for thought. And they're supposed to allow you to work with other people and the world around you in ways that heretofore were unimaginable. And in some ways, it feels like that came true, it may be in a limited extent or in certain local situations, but it's definitely not as as broadly distributed and as broadly realized as I think uh, many of the people 40, 50, 60 years ago thought it would be. And so that's something I think I'm going to really enjoy about reading these papers that we're going to go back and, and read together. It's going to give me even more of an acute awareness of what could have been and maybe someday what could be. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a great segue into this paper here, Man-Computer Symbiosis by J.C.R. Licklider. I do want to get a disclaimer out from the beginning that, like, we probably today would not call this man-computer symbiosis. Yeah. We'd call it human-computer symbiosis. Oh, yeah. See, that's weird, because I took this as, like, male computers as opposed to female <laughs> computers, because I figure, you know, at the time, they were really big on clear gender roles, and so we've got to make sure computers can participate in, the, uh. in patriarchy the way scientists and researchers were at the time. But, uh, no, your your explanation makes a lot more sense. Than, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you look at, like, the Turing test, it's actually, like, trying... Some, one person has to pretend to be the woman, yeah. which is really weird. Uh, but, yeah, so, no, uh, this is... I think we should definitely call this human computer symbiosis yeah uh you know to lick lick is how uh jcr licklider preferred to be called by everybody so I'm i gonna... call him licky but uh you know <laughs> teach their own uh to lick's credit he mentions human beings quite a lot so i don't think he was trying to like yeah. so heavily gender this but you know it's 1960 and uh yeah that's what they did and i think we can both agree that like we're we don't want to do that and maybe if we read some quotes we'll try to change it to be gender neutral but we might you know slip up and yeah in general we mean because we're reading right but like we mean human computer symbiosis yeah awesome yeah i just thought that was important to get out there it's it's one of those like great i think great paper but uh kind of uh title doesn't really stand the test of time here so yeah, I, I, you know, this paper, um, I, I chose this paper because I think it's a really good introduction into exactly the things you were talking about, that like this kind of grander vision for what computers ought to mean to people, to society. And I I personally think it's a, a really, I don't know if I would say like it is the exact vision I want, but it's a really interesting take. 
you know, we have like the bicycle for the mind as like kind of the slogan that a lot of people have used, mm-hmm. but I feel like symbiosis has kind of fallen by the wayside as a metaphor to use. And I think it's a really provocative, interesting one. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of like sort of early transhumanism and, uh, and eventually I think it became more and more science fiction than, than something that people were pursuing in a serious way. But this idea of like augmenting the human being, like we've got Engelbert's famous work in that area. And there's just something about um, focusing on the relationship between the person and the computer so early on in the history of the development of the computer um, that I think makes this paper have this energy to it and excitement that I felt reading it just because it, uh, it it does such a great job of, of imagining where things will go. And I struggled to find examples in this paper where it actually made a, a prediction that didn't turn out to be true. Like it, it does an amazing job of looking at very primitive technology at the time where computers were still, you know, room scale batch process things where you have to prepare a program offline and then feed it to the computer and it will do its crunching and give you back a result. And then you take your result and do more work offline while other people were using the computer. There wasn't much in the way of time sharing yet. And it, it, imagines you know with the with the march of technology and the advancement of of what it is that enables computation and this is before the transistor era too if i'm not mistaken this is before microprocessors were a thing for sure it it imagines something that i think became a reality in the personal computer revolution in the 80s where people and computers had this much more intimate relationship and it to me it just nails it like it's it's uncanny um so i think well i have no segue jimmy it's uh, your turn. <laughs> i would say I, I i think that's really interesting because uh i do think it gets a lot right right like don't get me wrong i do think it predicts a lot there's also a lot of things though that it like really gets wrong and like being too pessimistic about where uh, oh what's yeah. going to be possible yeah timelines and that sort of thing i don't mean timelines i mean just in terms of like capability and what the relationship between the person and the computer will look like when it happens like it's it it doesn't arrive in the order that licky imagines it will uh (laughs) but um it's i like there were very few if any things that i noticed that stuck out as like oh yeah that's nothing like what we have today see i guess i would actually take the opposite i think i think that he Predict some some good things, but I don't think we've made it yet. Yeah, I mean that, and that's I think that's going to be in the eye of the beholder. Like, there's definitely a a, a pessimistic sort of hate read of this paper <laughs> where you're you're reading it and you're you're seeing all the ways in which the computer industry has failed to deliver on the promise. And I mean that's definitely on brand for for us. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I I kept catching myself reading it in that light and thinking, you know what, that, that might be me projecting into this, my imagination of what I think Licky would have wanted (laughs) based (laughs) on, you know, his wild imagination or like, like an Alan Kay type figure where they're just sort of Uh perpetually underwhelmed by the, the industry. But there are, I think, ways of interpreting what Lick is saying that, that are fulfilled like the criteria are fulfilled by what we have today but i think this this is probably something we can hash out as we go through it in more detail yeah i I totally agree i think that there are ways and 
but I, I, I do think, I think it's okay. Let's let, let's just dive in. I think to yeah. how he, so we can try to figure out, you know, where are we on this? You know, I, I tried to find like an interview with him on him, like definitively saying whether he felt it, but I mean, not that that would really matter, but I, I couldn't find anything where he's like, yep, we reached it and my goal happened or not. Right. Yeah. Uh, but Okay, so he starts off by, like, defining symbiosis, the general concept, right? He talks about the the fig tree and this larva that, like, helps the fig tree grow. And he he talks about this uh, as a living together in intimate association or even close union of two dissimilar organisms, that's his idea of uh, of what symbiosis would be. So if we make this a human-computer symbiosis, it would be that we are living together in intimate association, and we are two distinct organisms. Mm-hmm. And I think that one's really interesting because he goes on, you kind of talked about this like augmenting um, idea, but he goes on to say that what he really wants to contrast symbiosis with is what J.D. North uh, called mechanically extended man. And I, I couldn't find, actually, I tried to track down like the original, who, who is JD North and what did he say? Um, it was very hard to find. I could only find this paper when Googling that. Yeah. Oh, on that note, I, I wanted to point out something. Um, the, the reference is JD North's the rational behavior of mechanically extended man, which, uh, is, also credited to Bolton Paul Aircraft Limited in England. And I just, like, reading that made me long for the era where, like, an aircraft company, like some random (laughs) aircraft company in Europe was, like, paying some researcher to think about, like, oh, yeah, this this hypothetical technological future where machines and people are unified in their existence. And it's like, that's a, a, a glorious age of great ambition in technology and business together that in some ways still exists, but it definitely is a different vibe than it did looking back on it back then through rose colored glasses. So that just made me very happy. I think all of that's been outsourced. Like I know there's a whole consultancy that like reads sci-fi novels and then helps companies like read the sci-fi novel to predict the future. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's cool, but it's also (laughs) totally boring compared to like, you know, like an aircraft company hiring somebody to go do this like tinkering workshop sort of experimental like you know we're building the the future of of humans with you know mechanical arms or or whatever it is that is this like man machine unification because yeah that's something lick uh distinguishes here when he's talking about person computer symbiosis there's this separation between machine and computer they're differentiated and that's I think interesting and and probably pretty important at the time, considering how early computers were in their evolution, that I think has been lost to time. Because these days, I will often call a computer the machine, like to refer to it in a in a different way when I'm writing, and I, I think of it as a very machine like thing, even though it's not very mechanical in the conventional sense of the word. It's still something that 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 differentiation i think has diminished over time as computers have become more sort of ubiquitous maybe and and this is an era where the computer is a very sort of special new kind of thing 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree that there's this strong distinction here between machine and computer, but I almost feel like today we couldn't draw that strong of a distinction. Like everything that is a machine is computer controlled. It's, you know, like I feel like the only reason that this distinction is being made is just because of the lack of ubiquity, you know, the, the newness that computers have. And I feel like today we could even say like, uh, you know, mechanically. So he, he talks about mechanically extended man uh, being that there are certain mechanical parts of the systems that were mere extensions, first of the human arm, then of the human eye. So, you know, we're thinking of like hammers or spears or and then like human eye uh, glasses, telescopes, microscopes. Uh, I assume these are the sorts of things he has in in his mind. Yeah, that would make sense. Not like prosthesis and you know. <laughs> yes, this isn't the the futuristic uh, mechanical extension. This is like yeah, we're we're doing that right. There's here's these things that we couldn't do without our tools. Yeah, and so I think if we're you know extending that to to computers, there's lots of things that we just couldn't do as well without computers, but they're just mere extensions of things we already could do. They just make them like more convenient. Mm-hmm. Or more powerful, right? Not like, not like different in kind, just different in magnitude. Yeah, like he talks about the ways in which these mechanical extensions have been sort of adopted by industry as taking functions that humans were already doing and sort of automating them. And it being about maybe reducing the role of the human factory worker or something like that. Um, and that sort of relegating human operators to the, to the, to the jobs that only human beings can do and anything that can be automated is automated by machine. And that it's sort of, there's a, a, I think a sadness I felt in reading Lick talk about this because it, it puts the machine in a very kind of narrow, unfulfilling category where it's just doing this kind of rote work that's of a mechanical nature and it's just displacing human workers. And it's not, something that I think he he really craves in this piece, which is uh, that symbiosis between person and computer should enrich both of them. And there's a, there's a passage in the, in the previous paragraph where it says the resulting partnership will think as no human brain has ever thought. So that's a benefit to the human and process data in a way not approached by the information handling machines we know today. And that's the, the computer part. And I see this like, this desire for both sides of the relationship to be enriched. And I think there's some, some like we have the term these days, mechanical empathy, but this is, you know, once again, we're disentangling <laughs> those things. This is like computer empathy in a way that I think is, um, it's very interesting considering the era. Yeah. And I love his little phrase to like encapsulate this idea of like, we just put humans in the places we couldn't automate as uh, humanly extended machines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that is a, a very little clever turn of phrase. And I, I mean, I think that's kind of the, the natural thing we do today. I mean, you think like factories, of course, but also like call centers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, uh, the the owners of all these call centers or the consultants or, you know, the whoever is running these call centers, right, and making all the money off of the labor of these people would love to just get rid of all of those people if they could, right? They would love for this to be a fully automated system, but they can't. And so they kind of slot people into them, but then don't even give them, like, agency or freedom. Yeah, it's, a, it's very much the, like, the half step that Mechanical Turk 
um, sort of mm-hmm. popularized among computer programmer type people who suddenly became aware that that is a whole thing where there are many jobs that people do where they're serving not as a as a free thinking individual person, but as something that is easier to program to do a certain kind of complex task than a computer is. Mm-hmm. And so for as long as it's cheaper to employ human beings in this sort of automated mechanical role, they'll continue to do that right up until the point it becomes truly, you know, mechanizable, automatable, and then and then the humans are pushed out of the picture. Yeah, exactly. And so I think this is where his his criteria is interesting because like even augmenting human intelligence doesn't seem to be enough to lick for us to have this symbiosis. It really has to be that the computer is kind of living a life of its own yeah. and we are also living our lives and then we're somehow, you know, meeting up in the middle and helping each other. Yeah. Um, and if the computer is kind of sitting there idle, unless we need it for a, a you know, a particular use, it, it seems like to me, at least that wouldn't be quite this symbiotic vision. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So he moves on from that though, to say like, um, and I, I think this is a, a fun little glimpse into the, the, the era, right. Uh, that, you know, a lot of people think we don't need symbiosis because, uh, artificial intelligence is right around the corner. Um, in fact, here it says that the air force has done a study and found out that it's going to happen in 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why even make symbiosis? Cause computers are just going to take over. I love his argument about this, <laughs> that it's like, okay, so it's going to happen in 1980. So there might be like, you know, 10 or 15 years where we can actually have human computer symbiosis before full AI kicks in. And it's like, well, those are going to be 10 or 15, uh, as he says, intellectually the most creative and exciting in the history of mankind. <laughs> so it's like this vision that he has is something where it's like, well, even if it is doomed from the outset, we might as well make hay while the sun shines and enjoy this this uh, period of, of unification, which is, of course, what came to pass. And now we live in the post AI world and uh, it's not uh, it's definitely not. OK, fine. So some of the some of the things I said earlier about uh, accurate prediction are, are uh, called into question here. But <laughs> well, actually, I think in this case, uh, he hedges his bets in a, in a nice way and almost like makes me think, was he a little bit more skeptical than he wanted to let on? Because he says that it it might be 15 or 10 or 500 years right that we before we get ai and uh 500 might as well mean like yeah we're not getting that right um yes but at the same time he like he double hedges where earlier he says in short it seems worthwhile to avoid argument with other enthusiasts for artificial intelligence by conceding dominance in the distant future of cerebration to machines alone. And so he puts like, he doesn't just say it seems worthwhile to avoid argument with enthusiasts for artificial intelligence. He has to say other enthusiasts, implying he is also enthusiastic for artificial intelligence, because of course, AI enthusiasts are so argumentative that if he doesn't, you know, pull that punch, they're going to jump down his throat about this. So yeah, I I love it. I think it's very clever little uses of language. It, It kind of reminds me of like, um, philosophers who were very clearly atheists who uh, couldn't admit as much and so wrote text where they're like clearly i don't know where they're like clearly praising god's existence or whatever but at the same time also questioning it yeah it kind of like they're on both sides of the fence so they can have you know plausible deniability 
Yeah, that that is a great analogy. Yeah, because in this case, like AI is definitely God. So uh, we're we're just you know in the glory days before God has been invented, and then we're going to all have to live in in holy servitude for the rest of our pitiful existence. But thankfully, we're not. We haven't lived out those fifteen, ten, or five hundred years yet. Yeah, I know that. I can't remember who, but there's one person saying some thinker saying well you know once ai happens they'll look back and see who who was the, who were the believers and yeah. who weren't and <laughs> yeah so uh praise praise our machine overlords whenever they uh-huh. arrive yeah absolutely yeah no question uh so yeah I, I this is kind of his first like maybe you don't buy my vision mm-hmm. uh and you know i think he does a good job of like eh, okay we can have both uh, but then his second, maybe you don't buy my vision, is uh, really that we don't need symbiosis because uh, it, he says that programming, right, forces us to think clearly. Mm-hmm. And that just that disciplined thought process that we need to, like, bring our problem to the computer might just be good enough. Mm-hmm. And I, I hear this sort of argument actually quite a lot today. I think this is still a, a very commonly held view. When I talk about kind of like REPL-driven development, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a closure person in, in my day job, and I, I really like closure. And so I, I work at the REPL interactively doing lots of things, and, you know, I'll kind of hear like, oh, that you don't need that. Yeah. Like, think through your problem very precisely, and you're all good. Yeah. It's it's like some people could, could uncharitably say that it's uh... – you know, it's being lazy because you're just kind of bashing away at it until you get the right result. It's kind of like the same criticisms you throw at types or at tests or at any any number of tools that are supposed to help um, give you more, I would say, dialogue with the tool that you're using to do problem solving. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think it's like, it's a fair criticism. I just think it's misapplied. Like there's great value in realizing that um, and that's like the whole point of, of oblique strategies and other techniques for creative thinking and spurring that kind of creative problem solving mode of thought is that there are benefits to having a tool that gives you a way of thinking about something and that forces you into a way of thinking about something and that way of thinking about something being different from the way you are naturally inclined to think. And so I guess this is like thinking fast and slow, that kind of thing, where sure, you know, a good programming tool might be so much easier to use that it keeps you in that fast thinking mode where you're not deeply thinking about the problem, you're not engaging with it. But I think that that's it's one of those lenses where I think there's no clear right or wrong about it. And what you really want is you want the ability to have both. And so I think that's where this argument fails here, at least, is it's saying, oh, we don't need symbiosis because, you know, programming helps you do thinking anyways. And it's like, well, sure, but not always. And it shouldn't necessarily be always. And just because you can have something have a desirable outcome from the status quo doesn't mean we shouldn't stop looking for alternatives to that status quo. Yeah, absolutely. And I, but I think that I do think is a a very good argument against it, but I don't know if it's licks like lick wants to say that, uh, really what, what we need to do with symbiosis is not only like have it help us solve problems, but help us come up with the problems to begin with. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe those are kind of like the oblique strategies and some of those things. But I think this is actually, you know, to have our contrast here of uh, 
you know, the, the, the positive reading that we've really gotten there. And then I guess my pessimistic reading that we haven't, uh, I, I, you know, I think that he says we need to bring computing machines effectively into the formulative parts of technical problems. And I don't know that we really have that. Yeah. And that, like, that was even, I had that highlighted in the, uh, the abstract or the summary at the very start at this, this distinction between, um, formulated, problems and formulative thinking the sort of the problem finding part and that's something where i once again i like i feel like there is an optimistic read of that where something like a spreadsheet or something like muse or something like you know any of these tools that that one could call a tool for thought in that sort of contemporary sense they they do give you a little bit of that you know, relationship with the dynamic medium that you don't get from something like a static pencil and paper or, you know, um, other kind of outside the computer tools where you're, you like, it's not going to help you with thinking in the way that Lick is describing where it's like, you know, the, the computer can summon data and perform calculations and do all that kind of stuff automatically and, and sort of imagine the right kind of data to go and fetch just in the nick of time sort of thing. Um, but it is letting you use the computer as a little bit of an out, like an external mind in a way where there is more that you're able to think and, and more that you're able to imagine through using the computer and you're thinking through the machine rather than it just being like a, you know, like a slightly fancier analog of paper where you have to drive the entire relationship, but it's, you know, it's, it's keeping a good record of your thoughts as you go or something like that. Like, I think there is, I think this is one of the cases where that symbiosis is something that I actually feel came to pass where computers are doing more lifting in that relationship than we might think. But this is a, this is a tricky and subtle thing. And I'm not sure exactly how to, how to point to it other than to say it's something I feel. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I definitely see where you're coming from. And I do think this, this trend towards uh, tools for thought is definitely a positive, uh, you know, trend and definitely is leaning more into this realm, right? I guess where I find that I'm always, I, I guess I always am feel like I'm, I am doing all the driving, right? In some ways, right? Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Muse. I love, I don't love spreadsheets, but that's just because I'm weird, not because uh, they're bad. Uh, I just I just can't ever figure them out, but I know they're really uh, powerful. Uh, but anyways, uh, I, I do really love these tools, but like when I want to think about something dynamic, when I want to think about a process over time, I feel like I am being the one that has to be driving every little thing and that my computer can't even help me think about just the unfolding of events over time. As soon as, if I want to think about something static, the computer's really fantastic at it, right? Like if I want to think about data, if I want to think about calculation, but as soon as I'm like, I want to think about this computer system and how do these messages go across them and what would happen if this queue backed up or, you know, whatever, right? Like these are the things I'm thinking of because, you know, I'm a software engineer, but like, yeah, I I do feel like there's some... uh, some lifting that the computer could be doing for me that uh, I, I guess I I wish it were. Yeah, like if you look at Nikki Case's work on on things like uh, 
like the transmission of viruses or their early work, Parable of the Polygons. There are these dynamic simulations that are for learning, like, you know, people call them explorable explanations. Mm -hmm. Those things are made by writing code. And the design of the code is something the computer does not currently help with. You have to come up with that design for the dynamic system entirely yourself. And then once the system exists, other people can use that system as a thing to think with and to bounce ideas off of and to experiment with and explore and learn through. And it there's, I have this acute feeling. I'm sure many, many people do that the creation of those kind of explorable explanations is something that computers should do a much better job of helping with. And that if they could, we'd be a lot closer to, I think something that uh, Lick is craving through this paper, something that he's imagining might come. Uh, but yeah, that's that's definitely not the case yet. Yeah, completely agree. I think that that's a, a great way to put it. Uh, and and if we continue on with this paper, I think this is where, uh, for me at least, the the organization's a little strange here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go from like, all right, here's some symbiosis. Here's what it means. Here's why you might be skeptical. To hi, I'm Lick, and I decided to keep records about myself to see what my day is like. Yeah. Can I, can I actually read a passage from this paragraph? Yeah, yeah, let's, for sure. Despite the fact that there is a voluminous literature on thinking and problem solving, including intensive case history studies of the process of invention, I could find nothing comparable to a time and motion study analysis of the mental work of a person engaged in a scientific or technical enterprise. In the spring and summer of 1957, therefore, I tried to keep track of what one moderately technical person actually did during the hours he regarded as devoted to work. And I read that sentence and I'm like, oh shit, you're just, you measured yourself, didn't you, Lick? You used yourself as the subject of this experiment. Like it's, it's one of those, those sentences that I think he's intending for it to foreshadow where this is going, but it has that sort of feeling where I expected the, you know, like the narrator from Arrested development or some kind of like meta textual layer to come in and say like this is going exactly where you think it's going and he <laughs> continues although i was aware of the inadequacy of the sampling i served as my own subject that just this made me so happy reading this like it's such a such a, a quintessentially dorky but in the way that just warms my heart so yeah the the rest of the section um is just a description of like recording his own work um, in, a, in a time and motion study. And I had to look up what those were. And they're basically like just keeping records of like, okay, at this time, the person is doing this. At this time, the person's doing that. That's the time study. And I believe the motion study is like, first, at this time, this person is here. And at that time, that person is there. And it's like just a way of recording data about the activity. Is that right, Jimmy? Does that line up with your understanding? Yeah, that lines up with my understanding, at least. I, I do have to say, I love this, uh, the, the right after the paragraph yeah. you just read. It soon became apparent that the main thing I did was to keep records, and that the project would have become an infinite regress if keeping records had been carried through in the detailed envisaged in the initial plan. Like He's like, okay, uh, if I keep records about keeping records, I'm just going to be keeping records, uh, which is just like, of course. Uh, but yes, I, I do think this is just a, a a fun little passage and would totally not fly yes in scientific world but even like the corporate world like if i was like yeah i did a case study of me yeah and i found that i don't like this and we should change it 
<laughs> like, <laughs> or even like, hey, I'm going to publish this paper in Nature or whatever, and part of it includes a passage of how I wanted to record myself, but recording myself, recording myself would have been recursive. I think the the reviewers <laughs> would have said, no, you have to take that out. That's too cute by half. Uh-huh. Very, very funny. No, that's not acceptable. But yeah, that's like so, so dorky, so heartwarming. Yeah. So what he gets out of this study, though, I think is probably pretty, uh, pretty accurate, at least I think almost certainly of, of his time, but I think for me as well, uh, that he's trying to do this intellectual activity. He's trying to make decisions. He's trying to think through problems, but that he finds that most of his quote unquote thinking time was really clerical or mechanical. It was searching, calculating, plotting, transforming, determining the logical or dynamic consequences of a set of assumptions mm-hmm. or hypotheses, preparing the way for a decision or an insight. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's not actually making the decisions. It's not actually doing the end product, right, uh, uh, and, and pondering ideas. It's doing all the things you need to do to be able to think about the thing. Yeah. This is also where, you know, my pessimistic reading here, like, I feel like that's what I do. Hmm. Like, the computer is definitely uh, a convenient tool for doing that. But, like, even just plotting data, like, I have so much data I want to plot that, like, I can't even just use, like, nor if I, I try, like, 12 different plotting libraries and all of them are inadequate in some various way and I end up spending you know, 12 hours of time just trying to get this data plotted rather than actually getting to think about my data. And this is something Brett Victor touched on really well in Drawing Dynamic Visualizations and some of his other work where he shows, you know, there are libraries, code libraries you can use for plotting and diagramming and that sort of thing. But to use them, you have to use a very narrow, um, very technical, very abstract, symbolic programming interface that does not feel related to the actual product that you're trying to make the actual graph or chart or whatever it is and it doesn't feel related to the data you're trying to bring into that chart or that graph that's on the one end of the spectrum the other end of the spectrum is something like illustrator where you can just do your plotting by hand and you have some nice tools for working with the graphical aspects of it for working with colors and line styles and step and repeat and grouping and there's some there's some nice ability there but it's not uh dynamic it's not generative you have to put down every data point pretty much entirely manually and there are some things that are kind of in the middle ground but they fall short for various reasons and those are explored well in brett's work but there's no great tool afforded by current software for doing exactly this kind of work. And I think that it's it's worth generalizing from that to imagine all the other different kinds of work that when you're not using a computer requires, or, or when you're using a very primitive computer, it requires still doing a lot of manual orchestration and a lot of you know, hard data measuring and crunching and, and preparation or, or information gathering or whatever it is that's feeding into your work and imagining how the computer software that we have today in some cases can help with some of that, in some cases doesn't help at all. But I 
do feel like there are some tools out there that do a, a very, very good job of this already. And I'm thinking of things like nonlinear editing for video, where the, the old process of editing a film was very manual. It required actually manually cutting strips of film and, and working out timings per frame. And, and it was a very destructive and slow and methodical process. And nowadays, like video editing and audio editing and, and other sort of artistic tools are so much more flexible because they are non destructive and because you can work with tremendous amounts of data and processing very quickly. Like another example is in, in music production. The Beatles famously had a four track recorder for most of their early records and later had an eight track and, and they did a lot with it, but they certainly never broke away from the pattern of having people in a room playing a song sort of through from start to finish, or at least pieces of a song from start to finish and, and capturing those, and then maybe adding ornamentation after the fact in other layers. But they never approached something like what you'd get with electronic music nowadays, where the, the, the music can be made entirely from little microscopic snippets of sound being assembled, almost like, you know, pieces of scrap paper on a, on a table spread out in a collage or something like that. Like there are different ways of working that are afforded by the dynamism of the computer. And I think this is one of those situations where sure, like when it comes to data processing, or when it comes to number crunching, like there's still, there are still some domains that are underserved. But I think at least in the artistic domains, we are living in the future that is promised by this, this vision Lick is putting forward. Yeah, that's actually a really great point. I guess, uh, maybe, maybe a lot of my, uh, my pessimism comes from like being in the one domain where the you know you're doing something quote unquote unique right like it's it's not you're doing general data processing rather than domain specific mm -hmm. you know yeah. uh, data processing and and I'm building the tools to make people be able to do the domain specific things so yeah I, I think that's actually a, a, a wonderful point I hadn't really thought about you know music film etc and how much less yeah how much you really do get to think a little bit more about those I, I guess though from the outside take it almost feels like having never done that old those old processes mm-hmm it still feels very manual to me. Hmm, mm -hmm. All right. And maybe that's just me like always uh, being unhappy with computers, right? Whatever. Right. But like, I don't know. I'm not, uh, I'm not, I can, I can play, I can play the bass, you know, like I, I played the bass, the, the stand-up bass in, in high school. I have a bass guitar. I can, you know, make a few chords, but I'm definitely not like a musician by, by any stretch of the imagination. But it does feel like it could be way easier for me to make music. Um, sure. I mean, there's, there's GarageBand and other things like that. Like, there's, there are computer tools out there that mean you don't have to... Like, you can... You, here's, here's another way of looking at it. Music and acoustics and the theory thereof can be split into a lot of different categories and a lot of different aspects. And you can pretty much pick any one of those aspects and say, I don't want to think about that mm -hmm. specific thing. And there will be a piece of software that says, okay, I will think about that thing for you. Whether it's like 
uh, chord progressions. There are software programs out there that will just generate chord progressions. Like if you look at uh, Microsoft Songsmith or whatever, where you can mm-hmm. feed it some musical ideas and it will generate a whole progression and, and set the the singing that you do to uh, to an accompaniment for you so you don't <laughs> have to worry about what the chord progression is. Or there are things for handling rhythm, like quantization. There are things for handling, I don't want to have to generate tones. Okay, there are all these sample libraries and, and, and tone bank libraries. Um, a, a, just another example of a different domain that I think might be easier to relate to is the difference between using a typewriter and a word processor, where a word processor does like a staggering amount of work that is so well handled that we just take it for granted and it's it's basically invisible to all but the people who have actually tried to implement one of them from some degree of scratch um, compared to what came before where you know a, a typewriter also a tremendous advancement over having to write out notes by hand mm-hmm. where you know you have to develop a style of writing and a style of thinking that works well for putting down an entire page of text all at once without making mistakes like the 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 way things were written before the typewriter versus after the typewriter is um just just amazing to me and the difference in in how people phrased their thoughts and now you know with word processors it's it's so much more flexible than that and in the ability to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite at a at a microscopic scale um, you get so much more like delicately crafted writing so much more easily that I just I I can't imagine what it would have to be like if you know the the computer word processor went away and I had to do all my writing in the analog way from now on that would just be debilitating for me yeah you know what I'll, I'll I think I'll give you this one I think that you're uh, looking back I had a uh, in high school I had a AP Kim mm-hmm. And uh, my the first semester, we had like 14 chem labs, and we had to write up these big reports. And they were like 20 or 30 pages each. Um, and in the second semester, my, uh, my teacher decided that we had to do them all, all these lab reports by hand on car- carbon copy paper. Oh, yeah. Um, and we were not allowed at all to to be typing them out and every single mistake we made on this carbon copy paper would be half a point off oh man i'm like uh, uh, any like bad handwriting etc and so i failed the second semester of ap chem because i refused to do the i went to all the labs i did all of the actual labs but i refused to do a lab report uh handwritten like that because it would have taken me it, I already spent, you know, 50, 60 hours of work on each of these chem lab reports yeah. uh, on the computer. And we had plots. We had to, you know, make graphs and charts. And I wrote programs to do calculations for me and unit conversion and all of this stuff. So, you know what? I, I think you're right. Uh, I Not only does the computer make that one so much better for me, I just actually refused to, to do it without the without the computer's help, right? Yeah. And I had similar assignments. Certainly they weren't in chem. They were more commonly in English or at least other places where you could make a defensible argument that that restriction was actually relevant as opposed (laughs) to some sort of, you know, anarchy not anarchistic but anachronistic <laughs> it's okay it's anarchistic also uh, but some anachronistic you know throwback to here's how real chemists did it in the 1970s or whatever mm-hmm. but yeah when i had those assignments where it's like you have to write this out by hand 
I'd write it on the computer first. And once I had come up with the thing I wanted to say, then I would actually write it down by hand. Like, I think that's the, the indictment of the manual method is that given the choice, Mm -hmm. you know, this goes back to our previous unreleased (laughs) episode of this podcast about, you know, given the choice between the augmented thing and the non-augmented thing, I choose the augmented thing every time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. So, you know, we're in the, I think we're in the weird section here, right? Where we yeah. we're now we're talking about like Lick going and studying himself. Uh, and then we're talking about just like in general, uh, how do computers and humans compare? And like, it's like, these are all fine topics. It's just the ordering of all of this is very strange to me. Yeah, I'd. I'll, I'll, I'll trust you on that. To me, it seemed to make sense, at least in that I could kind of feel how each idea built on the preceding ones. But certainly, like, you could chart a different course through this space, and it'd probably be more sensible. I just, it didn't stick out to me, but that's... Yeah, yeah so, so what he... I mean, ultimately, what he says is, really, humans are flexible, and we can go and do many different things, and, and computers are fast and precise. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I know, like, you know, probably needed to be said in 1960. That they each have their own strengths and that, uh, yes. you know, we want to have those two strengths complement one another. I'm very pleased to introduce you to our first sponsor this week, Theater JS, which is a project that comes from a member of our community, Aria Minai. And if I am mispronouncing your name, I deeply apologize. Theater.js, it's this project that I have a long relationship with, and I'm going to talk about it. I'm going off script. Aria sent me this lovely script for what to talk about. I will read that in a minute, but this is a project that is near and dear to my heart. And so I just, I can't help myself, but uh, share some of my own enthusiasm for it first, before we get into the, you know, here's, here's what it is on the package and, and here's the call to action kind of stuff. Um, Theater JS, it's a, I'll describe it in my own words. It's a JavaScript library that you include in a a web project that you're working on, and it gives you an interface for animating properties of that project. So you can pick, you know, a DOM node or something in 3JS or just some variable. And if you want to have that property varied over time, you know, typically how you do that is you'd have some linear interpolation or something like that. And you'd write the code for like, okay, start at this value and end at that value and take, you know, um, one second to do it. And you just math that out. And, and there you go, you've got a property that interpolates from one value to another. Another way you could do it is you could do some simple physics simulation where you say like, oh, the property has this current value and this change each frame. And so every frame just increment the value until it hits some goal and then stop. Theater.js does a wonderful thing in that it takes a a kind of an interface that I know of as called an F-curve editor, and it lets you use an F-curve editor to control how these values in your scene, in your project, change over time. And this F-curve editor, it's something that comes from animation tools used by real legit artists, real legit animation tools, like all the 3D animation packages that I uh, came to know and love as a teenager, because that's that's my background. My background's in 3D animation. And in those tools, what you have is a timeline view. So you have, you know, a horizontal axis in the Cartesian plane that is your passage through time, and then a vertical axis that can be sort of numeric in nature for whatever value you're manipulating. And you can put down keyframes along that time. So at this moment in time, the value should be X. And at that moment in time, the value should be Y. And then 
not just set, okay, I want to interpolate between them in this linear way, but actually draw using Bezier curves or other methods of, of, of drawing curves, uh, how the value should transform as it goes from one to the other. And this is a lovely interface for animating and for creating motion and for creating something that moves with expression or that changes with expression. And there was um, this project from Airbnb called Body Movin', which would let you do this sort of F-curve animation in Adobe After Effects and then export it from After Effects and then import it into Body Movin and use it in the browser to, to animate your properties. But that, that workflow, um, that should remind you of something, right? You prepare something in one program, in one environment that is disconnected from the thing you're actually working on, and then you pass it through some compiler-like process, and then you finally get to see the result later on separately removed from the place where you were working on it. And I hate that. You know that about about me. I hate that disconnection between the environment where you're doing your work and the environment where you actually get to experience the result of that work. And Theater.js closes that gap. It lets you do your animation work right in the same context as your project. It lets you open up a window within your browser and plug in the animation curves that you want to have right up against your own running code. So whatever it is that you're building, whether it's an explorable explanation or it's some kind of cool bit of motion graphics on the web or it's some kind of 3D game or whatever you're doing, you can have your system and your animation interface right in the same space. And I think that that is incredibly cool. Theater's being built by a small team of designers and developers and their mission is to enable designers to code, programmers to design, and someday empower everyone to create. For that goal, they're building a design environment that enables direct manipulation, composability, and remix. If that sounds like something you want to build, head on over to join.theaterjs.com. And once again, thank you to Theater.js for helping bring us the future of coding. All right, so so we're we're in this section, the separable functions of men and computers, an anticipated symbiotic association. <laughs> yes, and you know he, he kind of starts off with uh, some some interesting things like uh, a, a progression, right? He he thinks that like over time, computers are going to play a stronger role, mm-hmm. um, but initially, humans will set the goals and supply the motivations, at least in the early years. They will formulate hypotheses, they will ask questions, they will think of mechanisms, procedures, and models. And, and some of this, though, he kind of gets a little bit wrong. Uh, maybe it's in the early course of things, but at least we're, maybe we succeeded in uh, doing this. Where, like, he says, we have to remember that such and such person did some possibly relevant work on a topic back in 1947, or at any rate, shortly after World War II. Basically, he's saying, like, the computer might not be able to search all of this for us, and we might have to remember these things. Yeah. And actually, this is probably the thing that computers are the best at today, right? Like, I don't have to memorize relevant work at all. I can just search for it and find fountains of, of relevant work. Which is funny, because I think it's not necessarily that Lick wouldn't have thought that the computer could help with that, but maybe that that would have been a hard thing to convince people of that mm-hmm. you know computers would have that kind of search because it's certainly in keeping with other things he says in this in this paper that you know the computer is going to be able to make these sort of 
um, dynamic connections and, and surface suggestions and that sort of thing, which we'll talk about in a minute because I've got some thoughts about that. Well, it seems, and, and we'll get to this as well, but it seems that he really believed much stronger in the computational aspects of machines more than the storage aspects. Yeah. That it was really about processing that they were going to be really good at and not information retrieval and storage. Yeah, which I guess makes sense given at the time storage was really impoverished compared to computation, at least in Mm -hmm. terms of, you know, what it physically took to make storage happen, like, you know, giant drum memory. And uh, if I remember correctly, this was before tape memory was a common thing even. Um, But I might have my history wrong about that, I'm sure. Yeah, I think we're still doing like mercury delay lines and things. Uh, at this yeah. point yeah yeah which would just be wild yeah um <laughs> yeah i can't and, and and we'll get to that he mentioned he talks about like kind of the current state of computer memory and like the next section on this on this bit that you read about people setting the goals and supplying the motivations formulating the hypotheses asking the questions thinking of the mechanisms procedures and models as opposed to what the computer will do. I found that interesting because, and this is going to be a perennial theme on this (laughs) series of uh, episodes where we look at papers and and talk about them. Uh, I think this is almost the inverse of what a video game is. Where a video game, now granted, I'm going to have to, you know, Uh, sort of a caveat on this. Yes, video games are designed by people. And a lot of the things I'm going to describe emerge from the design work that people do. There are exceptions, etc, etc. In a video game, the computer is supplying to you, the player, the goals and motivations. The computer is formulating the hypotheses and asking the questions, thinking of the mechanisms, procedures and models. And then it is you, the player, who has to work within those constraints to fulfill some systemic objective. And I found that really interesting to think about because it's possibly what makes a game, a fun thing is the sort of the artificiality of it, the sort of, you know, hey, let's switch roles, you and me for a little bit. And I'm going to role play as the one who has to do the busy work to fulfill some objective. And you, the computer, are going to, you know, continually surface new objectives for me to fulfill. And that's like, I think the inverse of what Lick is suggesting the role should be, at least when it comes to this sort of like creative problem solving kind of work. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. I, I do think that at least the games that I'm always really interested in are these games where there's, you know, some system established and you're trying to figure out the bounds, you're trying to explore the conclusions of of the system being in place. So yeah, I hadn't thought about this in, in relation to that, but I do think you're right. This is very much inverted with video games. You know, it, it does kind of make me wonder... When we talk about, like, you know, programming should be more like video games, if that's not some of the elements we're looking for. Yeah, exactly. Like, and maybe this could serve as the foundation for, like, a counter-argument or some sort of rebuttal against the suggestion that programming should be more like games, which, of course, they should, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, there's this this aspect, like, as soon as you... And I guess that's inherent to the idea of symbiosis, where it's like two or more different organisms whose whose different natures complement one another in this very fundamental way, it sort of suggests that uh, 
there are these defined roles that computers and people are supposed to slot into, which feels very gender-y to me, just to take that one up again. <laughs> there are the two genders, human and computer. And um, it might be very fun in a, in a, in a, in a once again, another fun exercise to, to do more inversion of those two roles and to imagine what it would look like if, if humans played computers and computers played people. And I guess that's the Turing test in a certain uh, light as well. So, yeah, yeah, there's just, there's so much to this that I, I really enjoyed. I, I know I said that at the top, but like, especially now that we're getting into this, this part of the paper, like it's, there's some, there's some very fun things to think about in here that I, I loved. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, I think that what Lick, I think especially like to me, it's the, the beginning and like this middle bit, what Lick is offering us is such an interesting way of thinking about this. Mm-hmm. And I do agree with you that in some ways we've gotten there. And in some ways we even found that like, like you said, with video games, like actually it's the opposite. That's the more interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, but then there's some things like here where he, he talks about that, once we give these goals and motivations and hypotheses, the computer will convert the hypotheses into testable models and then test the models against data, which the human operator may designate roughly and identify as relevant when the computer presents them for their approval. And it goes on to say, you know, the computer will simulate the mechanisms and the models, carry out the procedures and display the results to the operator. It will transform data plot graphs, and then in a parenthetical, cutting the cake in whatever way the human operator specifies, or in several alternative ways if the human operator is not sure what they want. That uh, <laughs> that raised some flags for me because, yes, like that is definitely 100% one of the things we have today is this like several alternative ways if the human operator is not sure what they want this idea of the computer doing a bunch of data processing and saying hey here are some things you can choose from because I wasn't sure exactly how you wanted this cake to be cut so pick your slice um those definitely exist and I tried to think of examples where they weren't terrible and all the examples I could think of where it's like the computer's like, eh, I'm not sure which one of these you mean, which one is it? They're all, they're all bad. Like, I, I don't know why. And I, I would love, do you know any, Jimmy, like any examples where the computer is going to say, like, here are several different ways of interpreting the thing you've asked me for um, that are good. Like, is that something that we have? Yeah, no, I've, I've never found any of them to be good. Right. Like that's that's one of the things that I think, you know, to go on my pessimistic reading that we've fallen short of this is I can't think of anything where I can really give like some sketchy idea and be like, hey, computer, like help me think about this and show me different possibilities. And then it will, you know, help me. Right. If I want that. I have to make it myself. Yeah. Right. Like I have to code up what those possibilities would be. And like the only reason, like I have to consider, I think beforehand what those possibilities would be. And then really what I'm using the computer is, is to draw those out. Right. Like to actually make a graphic of them, because then once I look at the graphic, I can be like, yeah, that one actually works. No, that one doesn't, et cetera. Right. Like it's never like, Oh, if I group by these four criteria, then I'll make sense of this data. Like, try grouping by all of them and just tell me which one works, right? Like, th- yeah, it's it's almost never uh, 
quite automatic in that way. I usually have to pre-think of the ways I want to slice and dice. Yeah. So just for the for the sake of exploration, here are some examples that came to mind for me. Uh, and, and I think also relevant, see also, um, hey, check it out, learn more, click the link in the description, um, is our previous episode on this podcast with Ella Hepner, uh, where it, towards the end of the podcast, she talks about aesthetic selection and that as a, as a useful tool in doing generative artwork. This is related. And I think that there's some, some interesting stuff there, but it's, that is a... Uh, I'm going to put that in a box called it's creative and say that, you know, the, the criteria that you're using are very fuzzy and are very informal and are very qualitative rather than quantitative perhaps. And so I think it, it's more amenable there, but a counter example is any video game where there's a character creator, where you get to move a bunch of sliders around to decide what your character looks like, where that game also gives you the the thing you can click that says like similar faces and it pops up like 20 or however many different variations of the character and you can pick one of those variations and it'll move all the sliders a little bit. Those, those similar faces are all always worse than whatever I came up with and they're only <laughs> useful for making some just monstrous repulsive you know horrifying monstrosity i use two different uh variations of the word monster in there um another example is the the disappointment that is search engines telling you you know did you mean blank um because when they say did you mean blank it's usually taking an uncommon word that you used intentionally and correctly and saying oh it snaps to grid to this much more common word that is not what you mean and it's you know that's that's a frustration that is felt whenever it does that automatically and it says including results for this thing that's not at all what you wanted and that's why you didn't say it and what i never get from that interface that I wish it would do, and I'm sure what the people who initially designed it thought they were reaching for was something where it said, hey, here's this other way of formulating your query that will get you to a more precise result. So if you have like, let's say you have some like diagnostic task that you're doing, like let's say, you know, your your furnace is making some sort of weird sound and you want to figure it out and you go type in like, you know, weird sound, furnace, popping, gas smell, whatever it is, and the thing could come back and say, oh, hey, here's a different way of phrasing that query that just works better, that will get you to you know, queries about that instead of queries about, you know, something completely unrelated. Like there's a kind of a, a need for magic in there, a need for like, do what I mean, not what I say that computers are just bad at. And so I think it's, it's, it's like this, if I had to pick one thing out of this paper where Lick completely failed to predict how things were going to emerge, it would be this, it would be this aspect. That's, but, is it that computers are bad at it or to kind of like bring us back to like earlier, is it that really most of those functions, we are the, the humanly extended machines, right? Where what they're trying to do, you know, like I think like the YouTube algorithm, right? Like I want to, I want to watch some interesting programming content and I never know exactly what I'm looking to watch, uh, but I hop on YouTube and yeah, all those suggestions are really terrible, but not because they couldn't be good, but because that what they're optimizing for is to get me to watch longer and get me to engage more with, you know, content that is controversial or whatever, right? Get me hooked. 
Yeah. And so I, I do wonder, like, they're, and uh, apparently they are very good at that, right? Like, they do hook people in and they make lots of money doing so. Mm-hmm. And is it really that, like, all of the techniques we have that kind of would surface those things are, you know, they just require a lot of investment and we invest in them not serving us, but us serving them. Yeah, I don't know. This feels a little bit like a computer apologist. I think you're a sympathizer and uh, <laughs> should be regarded with skepticism. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, it, it, it's the kind of thing where I'd be much more sympathetic to the suggestion that the failing here is that we are wielding the computer to destructive and, you know, just to the ends of self-enrichment and, you know, corporate enrichment rather than Mm -hmm. fulfilling some grander goal. Uh, It would be, it would be easier for me to agree to that hypothesis or that suggestion if, if there were any counterexamples that were ready at hand, and that just might be a, like a lack of imagination on my part, I'm totally willing to admit that I haven't done a rigorous, you know, analysis of the field of computers making suggestions. Um, but it's just, you know, as a lifetime computer user, um, well, that feels dark to say. Um, <laughs> I, I don't feel like this is something that we've figured out a way to do that is beneficial regardless of who's at fault for that failure. I mean, small at a very small scale spell check is, is pretty good at, at those things. At least there are really good spell checks, right? If I have no idea how to spell a word and I Google it. Oh yeah. That's Google is almost always right about what, how I actually spell that word. Now I did have, I did actually think of that one earlier before I went all off on my bullshit. Um, (laughs) And I did think of that one and I did think of a really crushing rebuttal, but I've forgotten it. So I guess it just has to stand unrefuted. You're you're right. Um, Yeah. No, spell check is good. Our second sponsor this week returning once again is Glide. Glide's mission is to create a billion software developers by 2030 by making software dramatically easier to build. We all marvel at how successful spreadsheets have been at letting non-programmers build complex software, but spreadsheets are a terrible way to distribute software. They are an IDE, and the software built in it rolled into one, and you can't separate the two. One way to think of Glide is as a spreadsheety programming model, but with a separable front-end and distribution mechanism. The way it works right now is that you pick a Google Sheet, and Glide builds a basic mobile app from the data in the spreadsheet. You can then go and reconfigure it in many different ways, including adding computations and building some pretty complex interactions. Then you click a button, and you get a link or a QR code to distribute the app. The data in the app and in the spreadsheet will automatically keep in sync. For the Glide team, that's just the beginning. Glide needs to become much more powerful. Its declarative computation system has to support many more use cases without becoming yet another formula language. Its imperative actions don't even have a concept of loops yet, or of transactions. Glide needs to integrate with tons of data sources and scale up to handle much more data. To do all that, Glide needs your help. If you're excited about making end-user software development a reality, go to glideapps.com slash jobs and apply to join the team. As usual, I'll add my own little commentary in here, as I am wont to do. 
um, Glide have been very actively involved with our community. Um, I keep talking to people who say, oh yeah, I was working on this project with Glide and we just published this blog post and I'm excited about this work that I did. And it's, it's very cool to see how they're engaging with people in our orbit who are exploring this space and how they're pushing it from within as well. And so I just wanted to say that I, I, I have very much enjoyed having Glide as a sponsor because that's uh, made me especially aware of all the things that they're doing and, and to see how they are really pursuing this vision that we all share. And so I just wanted to call that out because if you are looking for a place to work on this kind of stuff, do definitely consider them because it seems like they are, they're very committed to this and they're doing interesting things to push on it. So once again, you can go to glideapps.com slash jobs and apply to join their team. Thank you to Glide for helping bring us the future of coding. I think that the the most interesting section for me, uh, where he gets both like wonderfully correct and wonderfully wrong at the exact same time, is this speed mismatch between humans and computers. Mm-hmm. On the top of page seven here, I just I have to read this sentence because it just it just warms my heart. Uh, I don't know, just how wrong he is, but how right he ends up being, which is any present-day large-scale computer is too fast and too costly for real-time cooperative thinking with one person. And I just love this idea, too costly, totally give him, that a large-scale computer is too fast for real-time cooperative thinking with one person. Uh, so I looked up what the fastest computer in 1960 was. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> and it is, uh, so I don't even know if he had this in mind, of course, cause he might not have known about this very fast computer. Uh, it is a Cray 1604 uh-huh. came out just in 1960. It had a 48 bit, 208 kilohertz processor Whoa. with 192 kilobytes of, of memory. It was, uh, MIPS is measured as 0.1. It had no floating point operations and no storage. (laughs) So it it didn't have MIPS, it had KIPS. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes yes that's a good point wow uh, yeah. yeah so this is this is the too fast for one person right is 208 kilohertz now to be fair that's still pretty fast like like kilohertz is when you're thinking in terms of you know raw data crunching and that sort of thing like I, I i can actually relate to this i'm not just digging my heels in because i said this paper was without error and all of its predictions <laughs> were great um that is actually like that's more than i would have guessed i and this would have actually been fun to do it's too bad we can't edit podcasts and, and splice this in earlier but i would have guessed um not even in the kilohertz range so that's that's fascinating to me that's really interesting to think about i mean this is a cray right like this is yeah. the supercomputer. this is you know not your your ordinary computer i wanted to just see you know if we push it as far as possible yeah right and i doubt actually that this is what he had in mind was you know the world's fastest computer in 1960 like like top three or whatever it was back then whatever the ranking is yeah yeah. So, but like, uh, I, I, I get it. Kilohertz is, you know, it's legit. Like it's not, you know, nothing. Yeah. Um, but it's, it definitely, I have right now in front of me, you know, my MacBook, 
I have my iPad and my phone, and then I guarantee this microphone has a processor in it faster than kilohertz. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, like it, it definitely is not too fast for uh, for real time cooperative thinking. Uh, it's really the cost. I, I understand that he was really talking about cost here, but I just I love the suggestion that it's too fast. Well, here's here's let's. Uh, I mean, we're we're an hour and a half in. Some of this is going to get cut out, so. We're an hour in. Uh, let's dig into this for a minute. So I wonder if what is happening here that would have been likely true at the time and is likely no longer true is at my 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 best guess, and I have no I'm basing this on nothing, is that at the time computers were still simple enough that certain people who worked with them still understood everything that they did from top to bottom. And it was doing, you know, kilohertz worth of work, but that work was fully understood and could probably be understood by a single individual. Whereas today, that is not even close to being the reality, where there is no single individual who understands what a computer does top to bottom in in full detail. There are people who understand... Mm -hmm in broad strokes and there are people who understand very narrow slices of it and um there was a time not too long ago where it was conceivable that a person could have a pretty good sense of things and i'm thinking like maybe you know around the time of the cathedral and the bazaar that sort of um debate about how operating systems should be built um but we are we are far past that era at this point and so it's 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 the kind of thing where I think if you're thinking of it in that way, if you're thinking that the computer is still something that can be fully comprehended, um, if it's doing, you know, hundreds of thousands of operations per second, and you're trying to, like, mentally contain that and think about it at, a, at an engineering level and not do this sort of big-minded, like, oh, imagine the future where it's, you know, so much more ambitious and it's it's thinking it becomes a brain unto itself and it has this you know magical quality to it but it's still you're thinking of it like a machine it's a machine that is starting to get scary in its performance and it's in the the rate at which it's improving and the capability that it's already demonstrating to do amazing feats of data processing it's it's the sort of thing where it might have already started to feel like, you know, like a monster was being turned loose or something like that. Like there's just this nuclear explosive sort of power to it that is coming out. And it's it's something where I guess I, I'm I'm reaching for what I might imagine is informing this thought of it being too fast. Because it's certainly like Lick at the time had that thought. Lick thought, you know, computers are already too fast to be thinking as a peer to a person. And so it's not like he's imagining, oh, in the future, computers will be too fast. He's already experiencing that. Like, that's something present in his day and age. And so I think there's something to that that maybe we've lost in the time since. Um, something that he was aware of that we're not aware of anymore just because the computer is so much more abstract and nebulous and and distant from us now than it was for him then. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that maybe also kind of, you know, playing into that would also be the kinds of things computers could do at the time because they were so limited on memory. Mm -hmm. And that's what, like, the next section is about memory. I don't want to go go there quite yet. But I do wonder if, like, if you limit a computer to pure computation, not on lots of data, not repeating that same computation on millions of elements, 
but just like, yeah, I'm computing something. Um, you know, computers are very, very fast. It's almost always that memory bottleneck mm -hmm. that makes it so that, and, and it's the prob the size of the problems we want to solve on gigabytes of data or terabytes of data that really make them feel slow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I do think that, like, being able to fully understand them, but also, like, they're only focusing on the, the CPU, the computational aspects, and not all the, the memory requirements could have led him to, to feel this way. Yeah. And then we see, I think, right after this, like, it's too fast. You know, we see a vision that is now, uh, you know, kind of being brought into maybe reality um, through dynamic land, right? It, it says, it, it seems reasonable to envision for a time 10 or 15 years hence, a thinking center that will incorporate the functions of present-day libraries together with anticipated advances in information storage and retrieval and the symbiotic functions suggested earlier in this paper. Mm -hmm. um, so here uh, we have this idea of like we have power lines pumping in power, we end up getting, uh, you know, computation lines pumping in computations. And there's like the community center that you would go and, and be part of this, uh, you know, this computational thing, which, which just to me at least very much reminds me of, of Brett Victor's vision here for, for dynamic land. Yeah. Though I, I, I'll, I'll push back on that only slightly in that I think Brett Victor's um, reason for wanting Dynamic Land to be a public thinking center is a sort of a, a like a public commons, like a public good kind of framing where it's not about um, the computer being a centralized thing for the sake of efficiency or anything like that, which I think might be a little bit of what's informing Lick's thinking here just based on the, the earlier parts of this paragraph. But for Brett, it's it's more about access and not um, not having the very profit-hungry computer industry be the thing that mediates someone's access to enabling technology, that all people should have access to enabling, empowering technology regardless of their economic circumstances. And so I, uh, I, I don't know that that's the sense that, that Lick is thinking of here. But in either case, I think it's like, an interesting thing that, yeah, maybe that will come back someday. Maybe we will find a way to get back to the public library being the place that you go to do your computing, which certainly like when I was a kid in the nineties, we had a computer at home, but we didn't have the internet because I lived out in the woods. I'm always living out in the woods. <laughs> um, and so we would go into town and I would sit at the library and that would be where my internet was. And I'd spend hours and hours and hours there just, you know, surfing final fantasy fan pages or whatever it was. But uh, yeah, I mean, I do agree with you that, it looks like Lick here is making an economic uh, argument, you know, for this. But I think you could also kind of take it a slightly different and say that, uh, you know, if you kind of put this Brett Victor dynamic land spend on spin on it, right? It would be that, and by having these thinking centers it would be more symbiotic because humans would get to be using our full capabilities, right? If you imagine, you know, this is, this is how like Brett Victor could, could talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's more humane. It's, it's more, we're actually able to be up and about and not sitting at little, at our desks, looking at little squares, but with other people. And that's how humans are supposed to be as we're social animals and, you know, all of those sorts of things. So yes, I do think that Lick maybe didn't quite have that in mind, but you can kind of extend his thinking here of symbiosis to, to apply to that as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. So then we get to, to memory. We started at computation. We're now down to like memory hardware requirements. And uh, again, I have to laugh here. Uh, when we start to think of storing any appreciable fraction of a technical literature in computer memory, we run into billions of bits. Whoa. And unless things change markably, billions of dollars. <laughs> Um, which is good to know that I'm a billionaire because yeah. I have billions of bits here that I can sell and yeah. uh, on on the black market and make billions of dollars. I and like is it's so it, like there's is I and it's so there's definitely not a linear relationship between the cost of memory and the size of that memory even at that time. Like there's no way it would be like a dollar per bit. Like he's got to be doing some amount of like, oh, what would it cost to, you know, manage to store billions of bits? Like there's that's um I don't know. I just like the thought of like $1 per bit in terms of storage is just like staggering to me. Like I'm sure at some time in history, that was a very, you know, a realistic thing. But uh, by the time we have computers that are operating at the kilohertz scale and considering these are $1960 also, these aren't $2022. So yeah, this like that, that passage is, is amazing. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It hasn't aged the best. Yes. And, and, you know, okay. So my bias here is there's a lot of talk here about memory, yeah. kind of on the assumption that memory is going to be really like difficult. Yeah. And so we have to be really clever. Yeah. Um, you know, and he talks about the, the try or technically it's tree, but T R I E for retrieval. Yeah, I like to call it try anyways. I know it's tree, but like... Spoken like a closurist. I mean, tree means multiple things. Try is Spoken clear. Spoken like a closurist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, this data structure does become important, right? Yeah. Like, it's used for lots of things, but he kind of acts like this is going to be the way, like, all of... Or at least a possible way, like, all of our memory would be stored. And then there's this, like, division between, like... Well, we might have some memory that's immutable and and we that's like the big bulk memory and anyways, I I think that maybe, you know, if you think there's something really interesting in here, I do think that this is like one of the places where I think it was important for his time, right? Cuz he has to like justify the possibility here. Um but it just didn't, you know, live it didn't it didn't uh, age well. Really, you don't think immutable memory and having some things that are marked as indelible and some things that are marked as as published um you don't think that <laughs> as a closureist you don't think that that's uh that has relevance to this day. Interesting, interesting, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I think that that we can kind of just skip over that section. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, and, cool. and here's where he talks about the different technologies, core, thin film, or even tape memory. So, yes, tape memory did exist at the time, though he listed it last in the list and said, or even tape memory, who can, you know, perish the thought. Um, yeah, I, I, this is, uh, this. yeah, this section is just uh, it's here to appease the people who are going to object on the basis of, of contemporary technological limits and that's clearly not relevant to the to the main arc of this work and then we get into uh his next section is the language problem mm -hmm. 
thank you for uh, for calling that out because otherwise, uh, yeah, because he does two sections in a row on memory. Uh huh. Um, so yeah, the language problem. This is more. This this one's more interesting. Yes, let's talk about this one. Yeah. I, so so the big thing that he wants to call out is that there's this dissimilarity between human languages and computer languages, and that this is the most serious obstacle for true symbiosis. Yeah. True to this day. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think he's exactly right. And I guess this is where my reading, my pessimistic reading to keep calling it that uh, also uh, comes in because we, we haven't solved this like at all. Yeah. Like Siri is not a serious solution to solving the language problem. Uh, nor is SQL, um, nor is any of the, the attempts we've had of like, yeah, yeah, you can kind of do natural language-ish stuff. Yeah. And just to just to like uh, describe what this section talks about, because I don't think we did it. We just said the language problem like it's it's going to be very familiar. My only note for this whole section is that it slaps. Um, it's basically, <laughs> you know, if computers and people are supposed to have the symbiotic relationship, they need a way to communicate with one another. How might we do that? It looks at some emerging ideas called programming languages like Fortran and Algol and um ipl yeah ipl um and and how they are uh sort of a promising direction but not um not a uh full realization um and 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 subsequent sections are going to get into this more and more interesting ways but Mm -hmm. yeah that there's just this this sort of limitation in the bandwidth of communication between the human and the computer and and some ways of of navigating that um it also references this idea of telling the computer what to do through the specification of goals and the way that computer algorithms might be able to work with those goals, doing something like hill climbing or self-organization. And it uh, looks at those two things and sort of says, oh, hey, yeah, they're both kind of promising. Um, Hill climbing has been researched a fair bit and and shows some promise um, and has some implications. And then self-organizing programs, which feels a little bit OOE to me, maybe, um, has not been uh, explored enough, but could could mean some some really powerful things. But it's it's a pretty short section that just basically holds true to this day saying, hey, you know, this is important. Computers and people need to be able to communicate with one another. And um, and we still haven't cracked that nut. And then he's got a little dig making fun of Los Angeles for being covered in smog. Ah, uh, yes, um, yeah. <laughs> which also holds true today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. this this section aged very well in that I, I I think he's pointing out problems that you know we still have. Yeah. Um, and even kind of admitting that there's not great solutions. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I think that that's very accurate. And then the next section, I think, also I think aged very well. Yeah. yeah. Um this input output equipment. So um, I'll just, I'll go to where I think like kind of the meat of this whole thing is to me is, is nowhere to my knowledge. However, is there anything approaching the flexibility and convenience of pencil and doodle pad or chalk and blackboard used by people in technical discussion? Mm -hmm. So he says there's all these input and output devices. We're coming up with lots of things, but uh, they're, they're not as good as writing stuff down. That, stabs me right in the heart with a number two pencil um because i like i i'm sure by the time this episode comes out the the work i've been doing with ink and switch will be published um that's something i've been thinking a lot a lot a lot about is the relationship between 
pencil and doodle pad or chalk and blackboard. There you go, Ken Perlin. Um, <laughs> and, and what we have as the equivalents or the, the simulations or the, the, the computer things that borrow from that tradition of, of pencil and paper. Um, and just like, I've, I've spent <laughs> quite a few hours writing down exhaustive explanations of how pencil and paper are so much richer than stylus and touchscreen or stylus and, and tablet. And it's something that it, it's just a real bugbear of mine. It's a real hobby horse. Like we could go so much deeper into this, but things like at the time and even to this day, like working with a, a, a tablet and a stylus interface, like you have that tablet and stylus kind of designed together and prescribed for one another in a very narrow way. And sure, like with resistive touchscreens, you could use any kind of firm thing that could press in and make contact. But now with capacitive um, and with the, the digitizers used for styluses, it's so much more narrow. And, and traditionally where the stylus was on a wire and was sort of like the light gun on the nest or something like that with a you know some way of figuring out where it was using a camera or some other mechanism like it's even more limited where with actual paper and pencil like you have just and in this sort of way that brett victor references a lot like you have the benefit of physics you have the benefit of i can get any one of a hundred different pencils and any one of a hundred different kinds of paper and spread them all out around me in space and and have you know multiples of them and mix and match them however i want and there's this like just all these beautiful emergent properties from them that nothing in the computer has that yet there's nothing in in the computer that is so compositional as pencil and paper and we have so much theory and we have so much you know development like we we praise things like open doc and and other attempts at interoperability and open standards and like the you know the glorious era of the late 2000s where it was like apis are going to be the the revolutionary thing and every web service should talk to every other web service and if ta 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 and all of these you know <laughs> wonderful uh, promises being fulfilled about the computer being so general and so open to computation. And yet it's like we have never even cracked um, or even like put a, a chink in the shell of the nut of pencil and paper when it comes to the the richness that you can get from an interface with a tool for thinking. Like it's just, it's, it's not even close. And so that, like that little mention of pencil and doodle pad, like it's, it's a little almost throwaway line in the paper, but it just, it's, it's profoundly resonant to me. And so I am, um, yeah, I appreciate that. How many years has it been? 62 years later, we're still, we're still asking ourselves these same questions. Yeah. And, and I think he points to, in, in my opinion, like you're, I mean, I think you captured that beautifully. Like, there is so much that we can't do. And I think he almost doesn't want to, like, achieve that. Mm -hmm. At least yeah. doesn't think that's achievable. Yeah. And so he kind of gives this, I think, almost like a trade-off. Like, yes, we can't quite reach that flexibility in, in the same way, but what could we trade off for that? Yeah. And so I think this is where he, he talks about being able to uh, sketch out the format of a table roughly and let the computer shape it up with precision. Yeah. 
in this section, desk surface display and control mm-hmm. um, at the bottom here. Uh, they could correct the computer's data, instruct the machine via flow diagrams, and in general, interact with it very much as they would another engineer. Except the other engineer would be a precise draftsman, a lightning calculator, a mnemonic wizard, and many other valuable partners all in one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that rings true. Like, that feels like, yeah. you know, Sketchpad was happening around the same time. And this idea of, you know, flow-based programming is, I, I, I know there are people on Twitter who talk a lot about visual programming. Um, I don't know who those people are, but they're, they're the, those people are out there. Like, this is, this is an area where, yeah, once you, once you narrow that interface and you set up some reasonable expectations for like, okay, you know, computers can't emulate the richness of physical interfaces that we're used to for other thinking tools like pen and paper, but what interfaces could they offer that might be nice to think through and in what way would that allow the relationship to be? And it's, it's interesting that, and this might just be a framing device because of the, the fact that Licky is, um, I think he's doing this, this publishing this, uh, this paper here for the Air Force, I think. Mm-hmm. So it might be that that is the focus, but it, it's interesting that the, that the designs for the interface are very much engineering focused and it's very much about that domain and, and doing the sort of work that would be useful there and that that dictates the interface. And it makes me wonder, you know, if, if he was being funded by, you know, the National Arts Center or something like that, uh, would there have been a very different interpretation of the interface that would be desired and what that might look like, what that articulation might be? And, you know, another one of the accidents of history that most of technology has been invented by people who are of the engineering persuasion rather than of other persuasions. And, there's an alternate reality there that might be very interesting to explore if we ever get that technology. Yeah, I, I totally agree that it would. It is interesting just to see how much of this is colored by the military context he's in. Yeah, I would just say I think that we have we have nowhere near gotten to computers being able to do this. Really? Yeah, like I'm not trying. I'm trying to be as optimistic as I can. Okay, I really am. Uh huh. I just. I could interact with them very much in the way I would another engineer. Like my means of communication, even like, you know, trying to be as charitable as I can be with another engineer are so vastly different from, from how I have to communicate a flow diagram with, with a computer. Well, but there's the second half of that sentence, which is except. So we're, we're now narrowing the space so we start with another engineer except that the other engineer in scare quotes would be a precise drafts person a lightning calculator a mnemonic wizard and many other valuable partners so it's sort of it's it's narrowing the expectation a little bit and saying that this other engineer has these specializations and they they just so happen to be the specializations that involve calculation memory um and and precision and I think that that's fair. Like AutoCAD is that thing. Like when you're doing some sort of architectural work or design work in AutoCAD, like it's taking care of making sure you always know exactly what measurements you have. Like it's doing the drafts person work. As like in my regular job, I work a lot with schematic diagrams and I'm very familiar with the 
let's just say the variety of schematics that one encounters. Um, and some of them definitely feel like they were made with software that is doing a very, very good job being consistent and, and offering aid. And other ones definitely feel like they were made by somebody using a, like a, you know, just a general vector graphic tool instead of something that is more domain specific. And you can really feel the difference. Like I, I can imagine somebody in the 1960s looking at the variety of blueprints and plans and diagrams that would be created by people at drafting tables, well-meaning people, I'm sure, but there'd be variability and imprecision and error introduced into that. And it could be very appealing to imagine having a tool like Autodesk uh, or AutoCAD to do that that work in a more technical, precise way, because that's that's something that's chiefly valued in this context. So I don't see it as like Lick necessarily imagining that the computer is going to be like some smart assistant like Siri or something like that, or like what Siri purports to be. Um, but I, I totally see like gooey software something that would have been very foreign at the time very rare very unusual if you know something that lick had much interaction with at all i'm sure a little bit by this point um oh 1960 i keep thinking 1970 yeah so there there we go yeah 1960 i don't know if he would have seen much gooey software yet no um, no definitely yeah. not <laughs> yeah yeah i've been I, thinking 1970 this whole time yeah so but like like the idea of software like AutoCAD, I think, would have, he would have looked at that and said, yes, that's exactly what I have in mind. Yeah, see, I guess I read the accept a little differently than you do. I don't see it as narrowing. I see, I think you could write the sentence as, in general, interact with it very much the way you would another engineer, except they're better in every regard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Like, because it's, and uh, many other valuable partners all in one. Like, it's like, yeah, you can interact with the computer and it's a whole team of engineers for you. Yeah. I mean, it is a whole team of drafts people, right? Like, it is, it is that kind of an accelerant. Like, there's, there's definitely a tremendous amount of that sort of dull preparatory work that it was talking about earlier, where it was saying like, you know, I spent most of my time preparing figures and crunching data and plotting things like that's, that's gone. That is handled here. That is taken care of. And not only that, like auto, oh, I keep calling it auto, auto desk, AutoCAD and other, uh, and like SolidWorks and these other sort of, um, of, um, like architectural and engineering design tools, like do you actually have pretty good capability to suggest, oh, hey, you are doing this in this way and that's going to cause these problems? Like like they, there, there are the tools that can do material analysis and say like, hey, you're making this out of this material, but because of the, you know, the sheer resistance of this material or it's, you know, it's ductility or whatever, this shape that you've made or this tool path that you've drawn is going to lead to a break at this spot because we can physically model how that material behaves in the shape that you've given. And there's like, that work is what a brilliant engineer used to be able to do and can now be in a large part simulated or, or automated or handled through software. Okay, so maybe, I, I don't, I honestly have not done much CAD and, and maybe this is just true of CAD, although I would maybe push back even there and say, is is the CAD being a precise drafts person or are they, is it a 
precise tool for drafting. It's not like I can like tell the computer, hey, please go draft this idea for me, and I come back eight hours later and it's it's done, right? Like I have to be actively directing it. Yes. Which if I'm talking with another engineer, I don't have to be, right? I can interact briefly, walk away, come back, work has been done. Maybe not exactly what I was looking for. I can correct, I can, you know, et cetera, right? That to me is the difference. Um, but to even like make this not like, you know, maybe I, again, I just have this bias because I'm doing, you know, programming stuff, mm-hmm. but I'll try to make it like not that. Like, you know, my wife is a horse trainer. And if you talk to another horse person, and even if we like ignore like doing the effects in the physical world and just we're like, oh, there's a horse that's colicking, you know, what should we do? I don't know a, a computer program that would be able to give me the answer. Yeah, at least not a computer program where the the intelligence of the computer or the like the magical spell that we've cast with software to make it appear intelligent is what is giving you the answer. Like it, there might be information retrieval. You yes. you might have a medical database you can consult, but that is only a slight accelerant on, you know, having a library of books and you go and you find the right book and you look for C and then you find the, you know, call it. Yes, exactly. Right. There's the, the intelligence there is me, yes. right? Like I'm the one going and doing it. It's just the information retrieval. Or the intelligences are you doing the look up the person who wrote the original material, placing it into this information repository. And then thirdly, the person who constructed the information repository, the programmer and like the, the computer in there is just a kind of a facilitator between those three parties. In the case of something like CAD, I think it's just a little bit, nicer than that in that it's not like there's a person at autodesk there i got it right that time um (laughs) saying oh if the you know if you're using aluminum and you make it less than you know five millimeters uh in diameter and it's like a tube sort of shape then it's going to have this problem and if you make it less than four millimeters like it's not like they are hard coding all of the different circumstances for all of the different shapes there's some there's some generality there there's some generativity it is um it, it's where the role of simulation comes in and that's something that is not talked about at all in this paper unless i missed it or i'm forgetting but simulation is a really big aspect of what gives computers this sort of human-like ability to respond to novel circumstances in a in an intelligent-seeming way. And that's, I think, what enables CAD to be, you know, effective in this example where you could easily find other domains, other examples where it totally fails in this regard in, in the way that Lick is describing. So, yeah, it's like, I think this is very much an eye of the beholder kind of thing for this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to to make your art examples, right? Like, yeah. if you if you tried to get the computer to do the same thing uh, that you can do with CAD, but for art, I, I do feel like it's it's lacking. Like, it can't be like, oh, that imagery will uh, evoke certain emotions that you might not want in this culture, right? Like, you, well, <laughs> well, you say that, but there okay. there is a lot of, uh, and it's like the example with music, where it's like pick a part of music that you don't want to care about, and there will be software out there to automate that thing for you. Mm-hmm. It's not good, but it exists. <laughs> um, the same thing with video. Like, there's um, a lot of tools out there. Apple's really big on this, where you just drop a bunch of footage on it, and it automatically edits together some kind of you know little film that has 
careful timing along with music so that beats in the video match up with beats in the music and not just like cuts, but actual moments in the content of the video. Like they are doing some um, computer vision kind of stuff to figure out like, oh, this is the moment where the person jumping off of the diving board landed in the water and there's a big splash. So that would line up with a beat in the music. Like it can figure that kind of stuff out, but it's not good. Like it's, it's, it's yeah it's not like you hired an editor no and that makes me wonder like is it in, is there an inherent thing here or is this just a matter of time and eventually it'll pass beyond the threshold of of you know perceivability where you know all but the most art damaged among us <laughs> won't be able to tell the difference between the work of some you know very competent director or editor or what have you and the work of some ai powered video editing tool we'll see that's a whole other debate <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's i think it in some ways it's like uh you know the history of photography right like yeah just be it's not as if photography somehow ruined you know uh art Right. I know that some people predicted it would because like, oh, we're just trying to uh, represent the world and, you know, it, it gives rise to other things. So I do think that you'll we'll see it, it continue to improve, but that won't uh, that won't be the end. Right. That won't be the end in itself. And I would say it's not that photography ruined art. It's that like everything ruined art, like art is so, <laughs> so destroyed at this point, like pinning the blame just on photography is a little too cute. Like there's just there's no hope for art. Art is a lost cause. This is going to be an ad read, but I'm going to start off on a different foot than normal. Um, So one of the things that I found interesting about the Swift programming language is that when it was first introduced, it was described as something that should scale uh, as, as small as what you'd expect from a scripting language. So it's something, you know, if you just want to write a, a, a really, really simple script that you can run on the command line, it should work really, really nicely for that. That was a design goal. And so it had a really plain, easy to work with syntax and that supports being used in a scripting context where you don't want a lot of boilerplate. But it was also intended to scale all the way up to be a systems language in the large, like something you'd use to write an operating system. And so it's supposed to be very memory safe, and it's supposed to be, you know, very predictable and performant and have all these other attributes that are desirable for that kind of use case. And that's an interesting way to approach the design of something is to say, I want it to be very quick and easy and pleasing in the small, but I want it to be very dependable and performant in the large. And somewhere else where I see that that sort of dual set of design goals is with today's final sponsor, Replit. They're an online REPL. That's what it says on the tin. You can load them up, pick your programming language of choice, including Swift, and start coding whatever you want to code without having to install dependencies, without having to spin up a dev environment. They just let you get started right away. And so in that sense, they're nicely optimizing for that use in the small. If you want to just kick the tires on a language, if you're you know looking at a bunch of different languages and considering which one to use and you want to try them and compare, they're great for that because you can just spin up each little language's preferred environment do some coding, see how it feels, and then switch to the next one. And you don't have to worry about cleaning up anything that you might have had to install on your local machine. But if you want to work on a much bigger project, if you know what language you want to use, and you're just looking for a nice tool set to work with that language, that's something that Replit have been 
working very hard to make into a good experience. And this doesn't just include nice features that you want for more serious projects like GitHub integration or their multiplayer editor, which is great for getting a couple of people together in the same REPL, and you can have that collaborative editing experience that we all love about online tools. It also means that they're working on features that benefit different domains where you might want to use their tools, where you might want to do some coding in a specific domain and build something there. So for example, they have a game engine that they've made called Kaboom, which is neat. And you should go check that out if you haven't seen it, because it does a, a great job of introducing itself. It's one of those, those things that I like to look for is, hey, when does a project have a fun way to let you know what it is and what it does and what it's like. What's its character? What's its personality? And I think Kaboom nails that. And that's something that Replit seems really intent on doing, is looking at what are all of the different pieces that you'd expect to have if you're going to work on a project, whether it's a little tiny project or a big project, and making sure that those pieces are in place. And so if that's something that you're interested in, is, is building one of these systems that can work very well in the small and very well in the large, and solving all of the interesting design consequences of, of spanning that whole spectrum, you should go work at Replit. You can go to replit.com slash jobs to see what positions they have open. And once again, I'd like to thank Replit for helping bring us the future of coding. So I'd say, uh, so we've, we've been talking about this for, for a while. I think yeah. the, the, we've got this computer posted wall display, which I don't think yeah, no, today it's more like memory anything. talk kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then we got automatic speech recognition, which I think is pretty straightforward that we want to do this. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, but my favorite part in here, and this is just one of those, again, like old fashioned, uh, things that I have to point out, like, uh, you know, we, why would we want automatic speech recognition is what Lick asks. And he says, in large part, the interest stems from the realization that one can hardly take a military commander or a corporate president away from his work to teach him to type. And I intentionally gender here because it was very gendered at the time, right? Oh, yeah. um, and if computing machines are ever to be used directly by top level decision makers, it may be worthwhile to provide communication via the most natural means even at considerable cost yeah this is amazing <laughs> this is so good uh, and i'll give you um i'll give you first dibs at, at uh ripping this apart what about this uh stuck out for you I mean, so first off, of course, you know, at this time, we have these very gendered notions that like to type is, you know, feminine, yes. right? Like this yes. is what secretaries did. Yep. But if you're not going to be, you know, a, a woman typing, then, you know, you should be a computer specialist is what he later says down here. Uh, and I, I think this, like, this is just so not in step with everything else in this essay. Yeah that it it almost is like dystopian to me like okay like he says here it it seems reasonable therefore for computer specialists to be the ones who interact directly with computers in business offices yeah so just imagine that he's right and that human computer symbiosis will usher in the most creative and intellectually 
intellectual period of human history, but only for the chosen few? Yeah. No? Is this the priestly class? Yeah. Right? Of computer specialists, and then they're beholden to the kings of, of corporate CEOs. <laughs> it just it just strikes me as such so out of step with everything else that's been said that it's just laughable. Well, and it came true, though. Like, that's computer lib dream machines in a nut, is this 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 order of computer priests and their uh you know their their exclusivity and how they they keep other people away from the computer and they're this protected class and that the computer deserves to be set free of their controlling influence and i i just i it's it's painful to think about and it's awkward and it's out of sync with the rest of the essay but it's once again it's something where reading it it um, it rang true to me in, in at least in my interpretation. Yeah, and I think that, you know, obviously today, you know, corporate CEOs know how to type and so do military commanders. So, you know, but there was this real backlash. And I think that this, reading these old papers, and, you know, we've mentioned gender quite a lot in this. Like, it is, a, I think, an important reminder that, like, the social situation that we're coming out of when computers are being created you know, really structured what we have today. Yeah. Right? Like, it's not as if all of these biases they had in 1960 just evaporated and became completely neutral in the technology they created. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They would have been a present reality in the early days of deciding what it is that the computer should be and how it should be formed. Exactly. And and that still impacts today and so uh, this is one of the things where like i think it's i think it's important to look back at these old papers and kind of they offer like a very grand vision that i think is really attractive but also to see like some of those biases and and things that you know also shaped them negatively yep and this is where this paper if this paper i think you know ends in in this section right about like uh doing automatic speech recognition and and in fact says that probably 5 years from now we can have a moderate for like 2000 words um speech recognizer yeah. uh but of course it says like without an accent yeah um and you know like all of these like caveats right yeah um clear speaking no accent and only 1000 common english words and 1000 technical terms yes yeah Um, and i just love without unusual accent as if you know there is a such a thing as a usual accent yes exactly as if there's the correct uh accent to have yeah for, Um, for more on this see uh see the recent episode on uh about accents on the podcast robot or not yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, it just kind of ends here. And if it were, I feel like if this weren't a, a, a memo for the military and this were like a manifesto, yeah. this would be a very strange place to end it. There's no recapitulation. There's no big conclusion. It's just like, oh, yep. And now here's my budget proposal. So he doesn't specifically say, like, please give me money, but he mentions all these private corporations and how they they would totally take on this work and be able to achieve it. What an anticlimactic ending, like for for a piece that is otherwise so good at at forecasting where we have come in the 60 years since. It's just baffling to me that it ends with such a whimper, like with such a with such a nothing burger um, on on such a weird branch of the tree. It doesn't return to the trunk. It doesn't have any summary statement. Like, I guess there is a summary at the beginning that probably actually would have made for a better ending. Mm -hmm. And it just it 
falls out there. So that to me, that was the thing I, I was meant, I uh, was uh, alluding to earlier when I said like, yeah, I have some feelings about the structure of this piece. Like to me, nothing more than, than the fact that it ends literally the last sentence is just saying, achieve practically significant speech recognition down to perhaps five years, the five years just mentioned. It's like, that's it. That's such a strange thing. Yeah. That's not important, but yeah, and no, it is, it is just really interesting that that's how it ends. And I think it, you know, it does show its context, right? Like yeah. what does he want to leave people on is, and here's the research program we can start. It makes me wonder if, it like that, that that this piece of writing is so good at in my opinion as an optimist nailing the next 60 years of the advancement of technology if not in the right order and on the right timeline uh, is like a consequence of the fact that it is a very you know let's roll up our sleeves and get down to brass tacks kind of like serious proposal meant for stakeholders as opposed to some grand visionary manifesto that's supposed to, you know, inspire and, and delight other researchers and paint this, this beautiful picture of what the computer, what sort of, you know, utopian future the computer might usher in. Like the fact that this is kind of structurally forced to be very focused and very, um, you know, attainable might be what, makes it have lasting resonance whereas if it was grander it wouldn't it would be too science fictiony too imaginative too given to speculation yeah i i do think that this is a model for despite like you know it some of it not lasting the test of time in terms of like predictions allegedly yeah you know, well you know memory costing billions of dollars <laughs> right Let, we can agree on that one but uh but like it is, you're right. I do think that uh, even if I don't think we've gotten there, yeah. the course he he lays out is very much the course that was taken. Yeah. And, and I do think that this is a model for a really good paper about the future of coding, mm -hmm. right? About the future of computation, where it sets out the grand vision, but then really addresses the current issues of the day, mm -hmm. right? I, I, like, I have to wonder if like inventing on principle was followed up with like a more and here's how you achieve in your languages and you know your runtimes whatever this way of doing direct feedback even if it's just sketched out in the manner that this is yeah not you know in full detail if that wouldn't have been if we wouldn't have seen more things than we even saw. I, I think it was. I think drawing dynamic visualizations, which came after Inventing on Principle, and also um, uh, Stop Drawing Dead Fish, also came after Inventing on Principle. I think both of them do that. I just, I think that they, for whatever reason, didn't catch on among the programming crowd, perhaps because Inventing on Principle's vagueness and the plurality of different examples that it offered allowed people to kind of project something onto it that maybe Brett didn't intend. Because I know, like, not to, not to get all Kremlinology about this, but Brett, the purpose of Inventing on Principle wasn't to say that immediate feedback and direct connection with the tools are the principles that we should adopt. Mm -hmm. It was meant to say those are Brett's principles and that everyone should find their own set of principle, principles to motivate their work and that here is what it looks like to have a rich set of principles and to follow them in the direction that they lead. But that, like, that sort of fuzziness in his message meant that 
I don't know, a lot of people, I think, got the wrong impression of it and, and took the wrong things away from his work so that when he followed up with, you know, uh, like drawing dynamic visualizations is a very realistic tool. Like somebody could conceivably build that. And yes, it does have shortcomings and, and um, pitfalls and unexplored areas, but it's, it's definitely something that we could have today. And some people have tried to build that. Like there's apparatus by Toby Shockman, previous guest on the podcast. There's Charticulator, which is for power BI for generating dynamic charts in a, in a very sort of Brett victory kind of way. There are some other examples out there of tools that have done this to a good degree of maturity. But aside from those handful of examples, which are like literally implementations of the same thing that drawing dynamic visualizations was about, like they're just there for whatever reason, I think, nobody has done the hard work of actually picking a domain and saying let's let's you know figure out the principles the 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 victorian principles and actually pursuing them to fruition so i i want to say i completely agree with you on the the point of brett victor's uh talk and it's something that i really did take to heart that like finding a principle is what is more important than adopting Brett's, yeah. right? Like I've wanted to write a, a, an essay on this for a while because I do think that that's the the thing that is often missed. But uh, drawing dead fish, which I do enjoy, and then uh, whatever the other one stop was, drawing, or, uh, or stop drawing, stop drawing fish. dynamic visualizations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stop drawing dead fish, and then <laughs> stop, stop drawing dynamic yeah, dynamic visualizations. visualizations. Yeah. Uh, you know. They don't reinforce the point that you should find your own principle, right? They're, no, they're yeah. living out uh, of, of Brett's principle. Yep. Yes, I, I, I do get that. Um, but you're right. There are tools that did go off and do those. And I do think that's in part because he followed up with these, like with the, the dynamic visualizations, right, yeah. et cetera, right? Like he went a little bit deeper. But I guess what I, what I kind of meant was, yes, you're right that his point was not you should adopt my principle, but like the programming tools or the anything. Yeah. Like the programming tools is, is one of the things I was, you know, kind of maybe focusing on, which yeah, admittedly I have a bias towards those, mm -hmm. but he wasn't presenting here is a way to realize this. Yeah. Right. From my understanding, you know, it was, it was very much demo where, hmm. right. It's not like he went and built a system that could generally do this. Yeah, or he wasn't. He didn't write a thing or or present a work that is like, here is my framing of the problem that needs to be solved, and here is the relationship between that problem and the state of the art and the upcoming, you know, reasonably expected future of technology. The way Lick did in this paper. That's not something Brett did. Yeah. Whereas Magic Ink, I feel like, is much more in the vein of what Lick did here. Yeah. Right. Magic Inc. is very much a here is the idea behind what I think interaction design should be, meaning it shouldn't be all about interaction. And here are some case studies and examples of how you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I do think that while it's maybe not as wide ranging as inventing on principle, it definitely has been very influential. Yeah. But it's also it's much narrower than I think Lick's thing is here. Like there's definitely a kind of a Goldilocks going on here where this paper from Lick, like it does this beautiful balancing act between a, a truly grand vision, a truly staggering um, idea of what will come in, you know, 
20 or 30 years after this is published to some extent with the PC revolution and the GUI going mainstream. Um, and, you know, squaring that off against, you know, what is the first step that we can take towards that vision and which step uh, is the step in the right direction. And that's, that's a really interesting way to present a vision is to say, here is the distant landmark that we're going to walk towards. And here is, you know, here's a, because it's certainly not an outline of the full field of technology. It's just an outline of the things that are relevant to achieving that vision. So I would, I would want to, uh, you know, just because we both kind of had different takes. I completely agree that the things that uh, that Lick has said here, a lot of them has come true. He was very before his time. He put this vision out, and you know, partially it happened because he was also in charge of funding people who yeah. made it happen. <laughs> yeah, the right? best like, way <laughs> to predict the future is to invent it. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Like, there's no question that that's true as well. But what I'm curious about is, do you personally feel that your relationship with the computer is one of symbiosis? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I have no hesitation in saying that. Okay, interesting. And I, I don't think that, because there's like the different kinds of symbiosis as well, right? Like there's mutualism, there's parasitism, and there's the other one that I can't remember. And I don't think that it is a purely positive symbiosis, but I do definitely think that in so much as I have the ability to use pencil and paper to extend my mind into the physical world, and that I have, like if you came into my office and looked around and I'm sounding different on the microphone because I'm kind of looking around my office as I say this. Like if you looked <laughs> around, the space is a reflection of the kind of person I am and the thinking I do to the extent that if you took me out of my office and put me somewhere else, my existence as a human being is different. Like that's one of the reasons why it's nice to travel. That's one of the reasons why it's nice to um, have an office is because it, it's like being a, like a transformer or some kind of robot or something like that and being able to swap like different tool arms on or different, you know, augmentations of your person. It's like the, the Japanese school of, of science fiction character design where uh, Samus in the Metroid games and like uh, whatever the guy's name is in Mega Man, like they have an arm cannon because the cannon being their arm represents this idea that the power that you have is something that is within you. It is your own power that enables you to overcome adversity. Whereas in American science fiction, it's so often the thing that gives you power is a gun and that is a thing that can be taken away. It's a thing that you have, not a thing that you are. And to me, like being with a computer, that's that extension of my person. That's that, you know, that um, fulfillment of, of my existence in a particular direction. And I think that that, that is a symbiotic relationship. And, and maybe the part of the symbiosis that is arguable is in what way is the computer benefited by being with me? Um, I'll certainly tell you my computers are better taken care of than computers by other family <laughs> members of mine that tend to be overridden with garbage all over the desktop and, and covered with dirt and whatever else, not to throw anybody under the bus. Um, but yeah, that's not a meaningful benefit. So there, in that sense, I don't know. But yeah, like from my perspective, I do think it's symbiotic. What about you? How do you feel about your relationship with the computer? Is it symbiotic? Is it something that um, that you feel similarly or differently about? 
Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that I think really confronted me with with this, you know, paper here was. I relate to the computer a lot, right? Like I am on my computer a good amount, you know, I'm a programmer and I kind of like got into programming at a very form, very formative years in my life. Like I kind of discovered programming at an early age. And so in a lot of ways I, I wanted to think that this is a symbiotic relationship. Like I do get a lot of honestly, like solace in computers. I feel comfortable when I'm on computers in a way that I never did um, before I kind of discovered them. But as I look at it, I feel like I almost am always am in one of two modes, meaning the, the mechanically extended mode, where like the computer is a tool for me to accomplish some goal. Even if that's like a very personal goal, it's still a tool towards that. Um, or I'm being, uh, you know, there's the humanly extended machine um, that I am being, the computer is using me. Right. And not, of course, the computer itself, but the systems uh, that I'm in. So my corporate job, right, where through the computer, I'm fulfilling some role for the larger system. And I, I guess what, where I find the, the lack of symbiosis, what, like why I think I'm in one of these two modes is that I am always either the system's the impetus or I'm the impetus for all of the action. And I never like come back to the computer surprised. I never come back to the computer and it's done something for me in a way that I didn't expect before. It it's never feels like there's another organism there. It's always either I'm imposing on it or a system is imposing on me through the computer, if that makes sense. It perfectly does, uh, but I don't know that the larva that lives in the fig tree would feel that the fig tree is another organism. Well, yeah, but that's only because I don't know if larvae are conscious. Well, as a larva, <laughs> as somebody who is pupating. <laughs> like, my dog even feels more like a, more of a symbiotic relationship than, than my computer, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. Like, I get a lot out of my relationship with, you know, my tiny little dog, even though, you know, she's not providing for me or, you know, whatever. Like, there's just something there that feels a lot more two-sided. I, I mean, I just think that I, I would love for it to feel like a symbiotic relationship. And, and maybe some of it is not even the computer's fault. It's how I choose to use it. Right. Like I, I could even admit that. Uh, but I, I guess I just don't I feel like if there are uh, com computer human symbioses, symbioses today, I think they're pretty rare. I think most people would not feel that sort of symbiotic relationship. Yeah. And I guess that's going to depend on how each person defines symbiosis and and what it means to them. What does symbiosis mean to you? <laughs> the, uh, the Another angle that I wanted to take on this that you may or may not find permissible is that the ways in which a computer does surprise me or the things that it does that I wasn't expecting or you know, when I come back to it and it's presenting me with something delightful that I didn't know it was going to present me with, those are things that originate in some sense, in some interpretation, from something another person has done, but they're mediated by the computer. And that the computer enables me to have a relationship with that other person in a way that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And that 
that's not suggesting that I have a symbiotic relationship with the computer, but rather that the computer is able to have some of those properties that we're talking about, you know, emerging from symbiosis, um, but they, they originate from other people. So once again, you know, games where a game is designed by a person, I've had experiences with games. Like I played inscription last Christmas and it is just loaded with surprise after surprise. And sure, those surprises are all designed in a way where everybody who plays the game is going to have a similar experience with it. But the the person who created it, I, I can't remember their name, the computer was essential for them to be able to arrive at a system that is capable of creating those feelings within me and the other people who play this game. And it it just affords a really different kind of relationship, one that is a little bit more dynamic than what you get out of, you know, being able to write a book or uh, direct a film or act in a play or do any of these other kinds of expression or, or you know, draw a diagram for an architectural project or something like that or you know calculate the ballistics needed to launch a shell into another ship across the atlantic ocean or whatever it is so it's it's the kind of thing where maybe it's not symbiotic in a in a in a way that is in keeping with the biological use of that term but i think there's certainly something here that is interesting and novel and different and that has changed a lot over the last 60 years and especially the last 30 or 20 or wherever you want to draw the line either the pc or the internet or um, social media or what have you like there's there's definitely something here that and maybe it is the you know the the humanly humanly extended machine to some extent but there's there's something there that is new and different about the computer and maybe symbiosis is just the wrong framing device but if you took that exact framing away from this paper and said you know here's here's some framing that we don't have a word for that's going to describe the relationship between the person and the computer and here's how that that framing is going to be enabled by this technology like i think that holds i think that that's that's something that um, exists now that didn't exist before. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that this communication aspect is something I don't actually think is talked about like at all here, right? This, this like social aspect and connecting through to other people through the computer, the computer more as a medium than an organism. So I, I definitely would agree that that is a very important aspect uh, of our of our you know real existence, but I guess I just don't see Lick, you know, quite going there. Yeah, but I mean, Lick doesn't have the benefit of having you know yeah grown up with Diary Land or whatever it is. And I, <laughs> and in fact, that's a good example. Like 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 uh, online journaling, you know, the the early social networking like services like DeviantArt was a was one for me because I was an artist as a teenager. And that that is for all intents and purposes, a social network. It's just centered around uploading and sharing artwork that you make. Um, those things are more like books or magazines or correspondence through letters or phone calls or other things where they are like technology facilitating a direct communication from one person to another person. See also our previous unreleased episode about uh, long distance communication. Um, 
and that's not even what I'm thinking. Like I'm thinking, I, I'm thinking something much deeper and more profound, man. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking like, like the ability for the computer to be programmed and to have some dynamic behavior and to have some, not even like unpredictability or uncertainty, but to have like, to be more like a partner or to be more like, like even a, even a, uh, you know, a, a petty, simple, dim-witted simulation of something vaguely resembling a person, like to be a puppet, even like there's, there's something I think, profoundly different about that than from any other previous mechanism for quote unquote communication. No, I, I, I get where you're coming from. I mean, video games aren't exactly communication in the way that, you know, I was maybe cashing things out. Yeah. I, I guess what, what I think what I would need, right? Like, you know, you you already feel that you have that symbiotic relationship. I think if if I were going to, I do think video games are beautiful and wonderful, but you're right. Like what they give us in their surprises are, you know, also what everyone else is discovering, right? Like anyone who plays that game for, you know, yes, I know that there's randomness, there's et cetera. But for the most part, anyone who plays that game will have a similar experience. Anyone who, uh, you know, consumes computer specific media will have the similar experience. The applications we have are all kind of designed around the common case. And I feel like if, if we're going to have a symbiosis, I feel like there has to be something more personal, more customizable, more moldable, whatever word you want. Like it needs to be, if I go onto someone else's computer, to me, it should feel different it, in a way that I, I don't think that it often does. Really? You don't feel sitting down at somebody else's computer, like picking up somebody else's phone, not even the physical sensation of touching somebody else's phone, which is gross. <laughs> um, but like, like opening somebody's phone and looking at the home screen or whatever app they had open like that, that gives me this, this intense feeling of, of panic and discomfort that I'm sure is exactly the same as the feeling of a larva that lands in the wrong fig tree. Um, and, 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 and to, to continue circling back to the larva and the fig tree, like, isn't the experience of every larva and every fig tree going to be basically the same? Isn't the experience of everybody's romantic relationship going to be so similar? Like, you know, you and your, your true love meet each other in high school or you go to the same high school, um, and, you know, have a, have a, an infatuation and then an admission of feelings and then, a, a you know, an early flirtatious relationship and, and, a, you know, a deepening appreciation for one another. And then a, a moment of, of betrayal or something like that. And then heart wrenching and the undoing of a relationship and mourning the loss and, and finding someone else and rebounding. Like all of those are universal experiences as part of being a human. And even though they are all deeply personal, they are relatable. They are imminently relatable. There's, you know, like the love song is a thing. The breakup song is a thing. So I don't know that 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 individuality of experience is the right criterion for determining whether something is a is a profound relationship in the way that the word symbiosis suggests some kind of profundity which which again makes me maybe think that that symbiosis is a is a a word that we are now stretching far past its it's technical definition. Yeah, but we're not going off the technical definition. We're going off Lick's definition. Right, right? yeah. Like, yeah. Like, and he paints it as a utopia. Like, let's just, you know, well, it's this. No, he paints it as uh, computers can help you with formulative thinking instead of formulated 
problem solving. So it's like he says that we should be in intellectually the most creative and exciting in the history of mankind. Yeah. Yeah. That is pretty big. To me, this is the criteria. Yeah. I guess that's where I would go back to is I don't, th- I think that of course we're very creative and intellectually uh, exciting, but I don't think it's a difference in kind. I think it's, it's just a difference in, you know, we use computers to do all sorts of things and yes, maybe we can do it on certain scales, etc. And I'm not saying they're not, there were things that we couldn't have achieved, you know, that we could have achieved without computers that we had, you know, whatever, right? Like we probably couldn't have gone to the moon without computers. I'm not, I'm not suggesting otherwise. Um, but like, I, I do think that I wouldn't say that there's a, a clear difference in the, this being the most creative and exciting period of, of history. So just on the record, yeah, Jimmy does not think that the current era is the most intellectually stimulating and creative and exciting period of all of human history. Yes. On the record. And I do on the record. (laughs) I think that we are living in the most intellectually stimulating and exciting and invigorating period of history. It may be because I'm alive now and don't have a basis for comparison. If I was alive in the 1920s or whatever. And and it's the kind of thing where it's like, sure, you know, you could, everybody who imagines being alive in the, in the 1700s or whatever, imagines themselves in some high court or, you know, as the, you know, the (laughs) uh, patronized composer to some, some Lord or something like that, you know, a, a nice cushy job or maybe, apprenticing under da vinci or something like that but uh, of course most people in that time were not having that experience yeah I, I to be clear that's not the sort of thing i'm i have in mind here i would say if we are in the most creative and exciting time in the history of of humankind it's just because humankind has continued to progress and it's more about the social systems and the social technologies that we've created more than computer human symbiosis. Yeah. I think that we've continued to advance by standing on the shoulders of giants where giants here are not the great men of history, but all the people who came before us, right? The, 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 the masses who came before us, who forged ahead and, and made, you know, changes in our, our social landscape where we don't have as much injustice before, et cetera, right? I, I don't think it's because I'm really in, intimately connected with my computer. Yeah. That would be my, my stance on that. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree. Social progress is definitely the, the biggest giant's shoulders to stand on because it brings us to the present era where if we do actually truly want human-computer symbiosis, um, we'll be able to achieve that by finally giving computers genders so we can have, you know, male computer, <laughs> female computer, man computer symbiosis achieved. Thank you. Social progress. Um, we've made uh, it. Uh, that. Okay. I, I'm cl- I hope that that's the note we end on. Yeah. I, that was what I was going for. I don't think it landed, but it's close <laughs> enough. Yeah. We needed a way uh, out. That would have gone forever. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're all good. And that's all for this time. Thank you to Jimmy Miller for joining me on this adventure. Thanks to TheaterJS, Glide, and Replit for sponsoring the show. And I will see you all in the future. (laughs) 